Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Greetings, Tavarishi, and welcome to the Eastern Border. First off, I want to say thank you to Chris and Dave for their donations. My main job right now is a reporter for a small regional Latvian newspaper, and they pay me according to the amount of articles I write per month. And making this podcast both takes me away from writing articles and costs money, so your donations are really helpful. Thank you again. Dave also gets a thank you for pointing out that the team playing against the USSR in the Miracle on Ice game was the USA team, and not the Canadian one. And I honestly have no idea how that mistake made its way into the script. Secondly, after the previous episode, I've received quite a lot of emails and Facebook messages from people who shared their own experiences and more stories about the Soviet military. Thank you for that, and I'll be sure to use them in a future episode. Also, we have a Facebook page now. Just search The Eastern Border there if you wish to follow us. And finally... This episode is dedicated to the culture in the Soviet Union. Due to the subject matter, there will also be quite a few pictures accompanying this show, so don't forget to visit our homepage at theeasternborder.lv to see them. When talking about the culture in the Soviet Union, I have to warn you that I will be talking exclusively about what happened in the Baltics and the cultural life here. It is because we were quite different from the other countries in the Soviet Union. You see, we were the very western border of the USSR, where most of the tourists went. We sometimes even got more tourists than Moscow, you know. So the government tried to make us very representable and polished, so that the western capitalists would leave all their boxy, which is a slang term for dollars in Russian, in the motherland and strengthen the cause of communism. And over here, we really didn't like the Sovietization of our countries one bit. We had to be perfectly Soviet, which didn't leave much room for our own culture. So a Latvian man had three things he aimed to do each day. Number one, get stuff for the family. Which basically meant stealing stuff from your factory to trade it to the guy from the factory next door. Because none of that which the factories were making was in the stores, and it all went to the army anyways. Number two, get drunk. Because why not? Not that there was that much else to do. Number three. Give the middle finger to the system in some way. And there were a lot of opportunities to do so. For example, we have a city in Latvia called Uogre. That's spelled exactly like the word ogre. It was found in 1874. And in 1974, 
when it had its 100th anniversary, they made a memorial pin. A huge Lenin's face with the text Uogre written on its rim and a hundred under it. During the time, it seemed completely normal, because a lot of people didn't know English at all. But then, some nice people, who actually knew English from our capital, bought these pins by the thousands, and sold them to Western tourists. And they were extremely popular. It took a while for the government to understand that making a pin that states that Lenin is a man-eating giant wasn't the smartest idea. But then again, Soviets were really making people angry. Censorship was huge. There was a special committee for checking if any TV shows, plays, music, books, whatever, were presenting the Soviet ideology in the correct light. If you wanted to publish something, it had to go through the committee first. Of course, the people in the committee didn't know a rat's ass about art. Or, for most part, speak Latvian even, or Lithuanian. And, at least in the case of books, more often than not, just didn't even read them, and used the prohibited list sent to them from Moscow to check if the given book was allowed or not. You see, sometimes they just couldn't even read the books because they had no knowledge of Latvian. They didn't need to. Russian was the official language used everywhere and everyone had to speak Russian because all these nationalist sentiments and everything nationalistic like Latvian, Lithuanian, Estonian were just put aside. There was this Russification going on and a lot of people were just sent here from Russia during the 60s to work here. They had a special reserved place in all the opera and theater shows. And no director could make anything unless they had made some useless pro-Soviet stuff before. The amount of useless stuff thus made was huge, and almost nobody went to see it. Also, yeah, this is why the famous Sergei Eisenstein, who was born in Riga, and we are very proud of him, spent his time making pro-Soviet movies like Battleship Potemkin. Also, there were NKVD slash KGB guys in all the artist guilds, so that the intelligentsia wouldn't have any ruinous bourgeoisie ideas. But, for the common people, that just meant that if something was prohibited, it was terribly popular. If the Soviets say you can't read it, it must be awesome! Thus, for example, I've held in my hands a super tiny version of Gulag Archipelago, which had to be read with a magnifying glass. The pages were almost transparent, due to the chemicals, which were used to make sure no traces of fingerprints remain. You gave it only to very trusted friends, as NKVD agents were in every neighborhood, every workplace, and you could be reported to the authorities by anyone. So there was like, maybe two copies of the Solzhenitsyn's book in Riga, and people were obsessed with it. In spite of all the censorship, though, our artists sometimes struck back in hilarious ways. For example, would you ever think that George Orwell's Animal Farm would ever be printed in the USSR? Well, it was. In 1982, in Latvian. It happened because of the check the list for titles disapproved by Moscow thing. The local writers guild translated it, but gave it to the censorship committee with the slight modification of the name. You see, they just renamed it to something akin to Animal Household, and it passed. For a few months, some 5,000 books were printed, until someone actually read the book and it was quickly forbidden. But it was too late by the time, because the books had sold out in basically days. Censorship wasn't the only thing. Every even slightly nationalistic patriotic thing was prohibited. No Christmas too, because all religion was false in the Soviet Union, as it was officially atheistic. But they had this own form of communist civil religion. Busts of Lenin and Stalin, Stalin's bust were later removed, like these small red corners in every school, factory, army base, everywhere. 
these red corners were dedicated to the communist cause and they looked like small chapels. So only the international Soviet values were, were allowed. But people remember the past and wanted to keep their traditions. There are some important dates, which are traditional Latvian celebrations, such as the 24th of June, our Jāņa festival, summer solstice traditional folk festival rooted in pagan traditions. It's about as huge as Christmas in Latvia. Fully dedicated to singing folk songs, jumping around a huge bonfire, eating cheese and drinking beer. The other big one is the 18th of November. It is our proclamation of Independence Day. In the 18th of November 1918, we proclaimed our own country and the first Latvian Republic was made. All of these celebrations were completely prohibited. People from the Communist Party actually went around homes to check if people weren't celebrating these archaic anti-communist festivities. But people found a way. Now for some explanation so that you would understand the context. My grandmother's family from the dad's side were all patriotic Latvians, born in the free first Latvian era. My grand-grandfather was a Lutheran preacher. They barely escaped Soviet persecution, i.e. sent to Gulag in Siberia, by running from the authorities in 1940 and settling in a small town in the western part of Latvia. My grandmother's younger brother was named Alexander, and we Latvians celebrate names days as well as birthdays. The catch is, the names day for Alexander is in the 18th of November. So, every year, my grandmother's younger brother's names day was the most celebrated party of the whole small town of Smilton. It had about a thousand people at the time, and he was the only Alexander there. They were given the local culture center building. The Soviets built such culture houses everywhere, where lectures were held, some concerts played, and parties held and such. And the huge feast with music and everything was organized. With help from neighbors, of course. Always, two extra seats were prepared. For the nice people from the regional center, who'd come to the small town to check if anyone was celebrating the 18th of November, our Independence Day. And Alexander's passport was placed on a central spot on the table, sometimes even framed, so that they could prove that they're only celebrating his name's day. After a while, the local NKVD guys, who were also Latvians, just started coming with presents to, to this excuse party to celebrate it themselves. But you never knew if they hadn't been replaced, so you had to be cautious. And for some reason, in the 24th of June, everyone found local Janis or Liga and celebrated their names days too. Another thing which kind of falls under culture, remember last time when I told you about how we rooted against the Soviet Union and I told you that they were cheating? Well, it's time to explain how. For a while, as you remember, the Olympic Games were for amateurs only, as you may know. Officially, there were no professional athletes in USSR. Every sports team was related to some government factory composed of its workers, or to the army, or to the police, or KGB. That's why there are so many ISK or CSK teams in the KHL. That's Continental Hockey League, you might have heard of that. You see, ISK means Armeni Sportivny Klub, the army sports club, and CSK is Centralny Sportny Klub Army, basically Central Sports Club of the Army. All of the police clubs were named Dynamo, so we had Moscow Dynamo, and Moscow CSKA, and Riga Dynamo, and so on. In reality, the players were factory workers, soldiers, or policemen only formally. They received their salaries from these organizations, but most of them didn't even know what the factory made or where it was located, not even talking about actually working there or the police, army, or whatever. They were, in essence, professionals, which explains USSR's great collection of medals which it had to win for political purposes. 
That is why, when Olympics allowed professionals to participate, USSR started getting less of them. By the 70s, everyone over here had understood what the Soviets wanted. Like any other huge empire on the decline, by the 70s, everyone over here had understood what the Soviets wanted. Like any other huge empire on the decline. By the time the ancient dying on duty old creeps got the throne, and the stagnation had truly hit in, the government wanted some lip service to the communist cause for stability. That, at least, was how the party leadership looked at it. The NKVD had a stranglehold on fanatics, though, and there were many in the militia who took everything too seriously. Anyways, because of this, you still had to figure out how to pay the lip service in such a way that the nice people from the most peaceful and just internal security in the world wouldn't have doubts about you. For one, we in the university, Faculty of History and Philosophy, which I finished, still use a lot of nice, really good Latvian translations of ancient texts that were made in the Soviet era. Soviets took education very seriously, and that was one of the areas where they actually did well. Except the mandatory scientific communism and history of Marxism classes, which are mandatory in universities everywhere. Yeah, that civil defense which I spoke about last time. It was sort of useful, even. I asked my grandmother about it, and, you know, she still says she knows how to properly maintain an AK-47 and how to defend against a chemical attack. Yeah, she studied to be a surgeon, by the way. But back to the main theme. To get these translations of texts funded and released, they had to be relevant to the communist cause in some way. Want to publish a translation of Plato's Republic? Well, better write a fancy prologue about how it shows the roots of the corrupt capitalism thought and falls in nicely within the Marxistic theory. Machiavelli's The Prince? Huh, that's an easy one. We must show the people where the foul American warmongers got their ideas. And it got to seriously strange levels as this had to be done with every book ever. O'Henry's short stories, that I loved when I was a teenager, were, for example, published with an explanation that they reveal the shallowness of the imperialistic Americans to the masses and educate people to the tricks their propaganda could use. Anything written by Mark Twain was published as encouraging atheism so it could pass. And, of course, all the sci-fi. Science fiction was a special deal. USSR was an atheistic state. But it loved science and always thought that progress will lead us into communism. Because nobody ever said USSR had communism, we were always some 10-20 years behind and always got promised to get there in that time. So, any kind of sci-fi ever was translated and popularized. It was the official genre of the state. That is why I grew up reading Asimov, Sheckley, Heinlein, and everyone else whom you'd consider a classic sci-fi author. Fantasy didn't get the same treatment, though. That stuff was considered for children, and the first Soviet publication of The Hobbit in Latvian had a really weird cover. If you're looking at the picture right now, just take notice. The freak on the right is Bilbo. The tall guy is Gandalf. The one with the yellow hat is Thorin Oakenshield. The elves in that book's illustrations were depicted as, fo- as tall fairies, all having faces that looked like babies, with transparent butterfly wings. All of this with a completely unchanged story, which can show you how the publishers or the censorship committee had never actually read the book. Also, the Soviet Union just loved ripping off American books. You all know The Wizard of Oz, right? Now, this was a purely American book, but all the children's books were basically remade to be more communistic. So, what we got in the Soviet Union, and which I read as a kid as well, because we still had these books, was not the Wizard of Oz, but the Wizard of the Emerald City, written by some other guy, but the the storyline is basically the same, except of 
except instead of Dorothy, you get Catherine and whatever, but there's still the lion, there's still the tin man, and there's still everything. I didn't even know that there were multiple books of The Wizard of Oz, but I've read the, the, the Wizard of the Emerald City and its continuations, and it gets really crazy. For one, they take down the Oz guy, and then they build a steampunk utopia, which is of course communistic in its nature in the, in the Emerald City, which is Oz, essentially. And in the next book, they defend this steampunkish, sort of high-tech communist utopia in the Emerald City from I Crap You Not, an invasion of American-funded flying monkeys in power armor with lasers who spread foul chemical weapons which put everyone to sleep and poison them. Then the people in the Emerald City invent steam tanks and shoot the American, the, the American-funded monkeys in power armor down. And again, everyone is happy within this communism. They also remade The Adventures of Pinocchio to The Adventures of Buratino, which was also, again, very pro-communistic, and the storyline was changed, but I just don't remember that one as well, because, you see, I read The Wizard of Oz when I was a kid, way later than I had read The Wizard of the Emerald City, and trust me, if you can somehow get a translation of The Wizard of the Emerald City in English, do it. The Wizard of Oz is actually worse than The Wizard of the Emerald City because of the sheer insanity of it. The Soviets liked not only ripping off children's books and put a lot of communistic stuff in there, but they liked to make popular versions of American movies and books and such. And for some reason, everything usually happened in Riga, because Riga had to play London, and multiple shows. One of the more famous of these shows is the Soviet adaptation of Sherlock Holmes, which is, by the way, considered to be one of the best adaptations of this book, as we were the Westerners. And, you know, our past with being independent and our German heritage, we always played the evil guys there. If a Soviet movie had some Nazis in it, had some foreigners in it, it was always Latvians playing them. If there was some sort of a Western city that needed to be filmed in, it was always Riga. Riga has so far been Paris, London, and at one point even Berlin in Soviet cinema. The Soviet cinema was quite forced into the comedy genre, by the way. It had some great comedians, too, and it was meant, meant so as to show the Soviet Union in a very positive light, so that the people would get happier and associate so Soviet system and everything it included with happiness and joy. Of course, it was made, like, really hilarious. Soviet humor, in general, deserves its own episode, I think. So, I'll make that in the future. As I mentioned before, the USSR was an atheistic state. They persecuted religious people, and there were agents from the NKVD watching churches on Sundays to monitor who went into them for a service. If you did so, as in go to the church... You had to explain yourself at the communist organization if you were in the party, or if you were not, at the workplace at the very least. You could get your premium cut, or had your vacation cancelled, or be publicly laughed at. Many students who went to the churches, because in such a state being religious was seen to be rebellious, so our punks were mostly Christians, explained themselves in the universities saying that they had to know the enemy, to better learn the lessons of scientific communism. It used to work in the 70s and the 80s. Also, of course, as there were no Christmas, but everyone by the time liked our local version of Santa Claus, which is called uh, like Father, which is called Father Christmas, yeah, in in Latvia, uh, they made this Dead Maros, 
but it wasn't linked to Christmas in any way. They just moved all the Christmas things, such as the Christmas tree, cutting off the religious connotations, and just took, took Santa Claus, gave him a Snow White as a helper, and took the Christmas tree and moved it all to New Year. So in Soviet era, officially, you just only celebrated the New Year by putting on the Christmas tree, and then your father Frost, or Dead Maroz, just came and gave gifts to kids. Because even the Soviet government understood that people needed some celebration in the winter. Just like, you know, ancient Romans in Saturnalia. The Soviets also had this official newspaper called Bezbozhnik, which basically means godless circulating around. And they just used to spread it in workplaces and, and always told everyone that if you have some idea of an afterlife, that precludes you from building some heaven in this life. So they were aggressively against it. Of course, they dropped it all in the garbage bin when the World War II came up, so then they overplayed their nationalism and their religion. But it kind of went back to this official state atheism without the heavy persecutions of the 30s, but it went back to this official state atheism as being in the church really was frowned upon. And actually, the worst thing the Soviets did in Riga, in my city where I live in, culturally, is also linked to religion. And it was the Orthodox that got hit. You see, we have this large, ornate Orthodox cathedral in Riga, built by Peter the Great to accompany our Catholic and Lutheran cathedrals. Yes, there is also a picture of this cathedral in our webpage. Seems like a pretty awesome cultural monument, right? Well, the Soviets basically took all the gold and everything valuable that was inside, tore down and rebuilt the inside with an ultra-utilitarian style, and made a socialist realism art gallery there and made the top cupola into a small observatory, and made a cafe inside as well. It was called God's Ear. It was popular with the 70s dissident crowd. The Soviets in general saw little use of antiquated remains of bourgeoisie's capitalist culture, you see. Their own version of what was considered proper culture were demonstrations and Lenin statues everywhere. Demonstrations were a huge part of the Soviet propaganda. Every 1st of May, every Lenin's birthday, anniversary of the revolution, anniversary of the World War II, birthday of the new general secretary, every congress of the communistic party, there was one, with mandatory participation. But as people were just using that as a holiday from work, it usually ended with people getting drunk. And the party officials who were sitting there and watching these demonstrations, they also were quite often getting drunk, because those could last for like six hours or something. About the statues, well, there were completely identical Lenin's monuments everywhere, and always put in front of or nearby of stuff from previous eras. There is a picture on the webpage again of the one that was in Riga. Note that that is just next to the aforementioned cathedral. It was always said that he's showing the path to the communism to the people by the party. Unfortunately, Riga's largest liquor store was just across the street, on the corner, and although I can't find a photo from the time period online, it always looked like Tavarish Lenin just calls everyone to get drunk all the time. And you couldn't close it either, as on the other corner, Riga's largest hotel was located. And it was the For Tourists store. And while I'm talking about booze, which happens a lot because it's Soviet Union, vodka was also a currency of sorts. You see, there was a plan on everything, as I have told you before. There was also a plan of how many plumbers per thousand people should the state have, or car mechanics, or, again, anything. The plan fell terribly short, and there just weren't enough of these people. And each of them had a plan on how many cars... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Leaking pipes to fix. And as nobody wanted to work more than necessary, because the pay is the same and you can't buy anything, vodka was used to bribe the people to actually fix your stuff. Vodka was cheap, efficient, and extremely popular. It went so far as that everyone knew prices for fixing anything in liters of vodka, and the plumber didn't even show up if you hadn't given half of it beforehand. And even then, sometimes he didn't show up for a week or so, because someone else had given more vodka, possibly with some sausage tossed in. And this is why do-it-yourself manuals were extremely popular, and MacGyvering was the default. By the way, MacGyver was also an extremely popular show once we started getting that in the early 90s. Dad used to actually write things down while watching it just in case. Another thing about booze and getting things done. I asked Dad about the Soviet gun laws, and basically it was rent for hunting shotguns only. Some people actually owned some shotguns, but very rarely. Not even the local militia used to carry guns around on a daily basis. The NKVD officers, like the Cheka and the special police, could do so. But, you see, we had a lot of World War II veterans living in the Soviet era. Most of them fought for the opposing side, and the so-called Kurland pocket held out until the very end. The partisans, by the way, fighting against the Soviets and organizing immigration to Sweden by boat, were active until 1953. They really hoped the United States would get into a war with the USSR and nuke the crap out of them. We felt kind of betrayed after the war, and so did the Poles for whose freedom the whole thing was even started. So, in 1974, in the small town of Eisputte, which had previously been right in the middle of the Kurland pocket, where my dad was born, there was an incident which was nicely suppressed by the local authorities so that they wouldn't get into trouble from Moscow. It started with a leaking roof. An old man, a World War II veteran, had found out that his roof was leaking. There were no Home Depot stores in small towns, such as Eisputte. In the USSR, you had to go to the local municipal committee, that's how the town governments were called, and had to ask for whatever construction materials you needed, as they all were accounted for in the plan. After politely refusing to help, because all of that stuff was stolen, as usual, and sold off to someone who had sausages, real meat, or smuggled goods, by the town mayor... Well, town director and his cohorts, the man got drunk due to complete disillusionment and tried his luck again. And, as he was drunk, this time, they just told him to sod off in no uncertain terms. So, as the story goes, this old man goes to his hidden stash in the forest, takes his mortar from the war times, and starts bombing the crap out of the central committee. He managed to shoot a couple of blasts, but as he was drunk, he mostly missed. At the end, he got a monetary punishment for not immediately declaring and returning found war weaponry to the state. Because if found out, the town director, everyone in the town's NKVD, and many other important people would get into serious trouble. 
This was gulag-worthy even in the 1970s. They also gave the man his roof-fixing materials, because nobody knows what the old crazy dude has hidden somewhere else. The gun story is very important because the guns were really prohibited in the Soviet Union. You see, there were only good stuff in the news. There was nothing about crimes, or drugs, or alcoholism, or anything bad in general, except when there were guns involved. As guns were prohibited, and only the police were allowed to have them in the military, and only the assorted people, there was no militia in the Soviet Union. Because of that, only these crimes got reported in the, in the news, and that was the only bad thing that went on there. In the 1986, we didn't really even know about the Chernobyl, when the nuclear reactor had a meltdown, until the Swedish news started talking about very high levels of radiation, and only a week after that, when they just couldn't keep it down anymore, they just let the people know of what was going on. In the meantime, in the town of Pripyat, which was right next to Chernobyl, the authorities at that time, which by the way was under the command of Gorbachev, he wasn't that much better than the other Soviet leaders, Gorbachev organized a massive demonstration, as I told you Soviets like to do, by gathering all sorts of students and pupils and everyone and basically made some children's party, and initially he transported a bunch of children from the surrounding area to Pripyat to just show the, the country that everything is okay. And of course a bunch of military people were just tossed in there and ordered to just go and, and fix something. And so happened with a bunch of uh, other other things which went wrong in the USSR, as everything was just toned down in the media and not much was shown. And then there were things which people did for fun. For example, and sometimes it was interesting because it was state-controlled, which is somewhat weird when you think about it in modern-day terms. For example, right before World War II, the USSR sponsored and built a lot of towers for which to, for which the people could use for base jumping and parachuting was very encouraged. It was done so because as the Soviet army was conscripted, the state wanted wanted the people to be able to serve as paratroopers in case of a war. Now, there are some theories about World War II, again, in which I won't delve into right now, but technically they didn't got to use much of them. But there were still some of these towers up in my childhood in the early 90s. Also, people were busy driving with boats, and tourism in general was very popular. Tourism in the sense that you go camping, or you just take a hike somewhere. Boating, especially, bo- boating was very popular in, in Latvia at that time. Another thing which was quite big in the Soviet Union was just traveling around. And not just going to Moscow for the sausage for the special buyer's card, which I talked about in the episode one, but also just, just visiting things. And you could also sometimes visit other countries. If you had a special permission, if the local party committee and your workplace or your university or something, someone, there was, a, there was a huge bureaucracy involved. If they gave you a permission slip and you got a good recommendation, then as a special prize for some extra achievement, you could be awarded a trip to another country. Mostly those were just the Soviet bloc countries, such as the Democratic Republic of Germany or Poland maybe, or something like that. But sometimes you could actually go to some foreign country. But then you only went in groups, 
you couldn't stray alone from the group, and there was always some guy from Cheka, the NKVD, in the group to watch out for you not being spoiled by the evil capitalism, and you couldn't have any time off or go where you wanted. But even that happened only later in the Soviet era. You see, at one point, the Soviet Union actually built a model of Paris in Siberia, in the warm parts, in the southern Siberia. But it was built as a scale model of Paris, much smaller than, than the real thing, of course, with its own Eiffel Tower and everything. And as people were only supposed to travel in groups, not go out of their hotel, and visit the, uh, visit the museums and the, and the town together as a group, there are some stories from, from people who are like farm, who are like farmers in this kolkhoz, and they get, awa- they get awarded this trip to Paris, and they return back and they say, wow, this was much smaller than I imagined, and I saw the Eiffel Tower and everything, but the people in the cafes, they're sitting there and they speak perfect Russian for some reason, and they all applaud our Soviet state and our socialism, which we are building here, and they all are in the Socialist Party, and they just can't wait to drop off their dictators and oppressors and install a socialist government there. Of course, it was all propaganda. This doesn't even seem so unrealistic if you think about the famous Potemkin's villages built by this Potemkin when the Catherine of Russia had invited all these foreign dignitaries to Russian Empire to just show off its greatness and how it was a westernized civilized country. There were precedents even before that. But again, when the Soviet Union tries to take control of some part of a Soviet man's life, the Soviet man always strikes back. Another very popular hobby of the Soviet Union was amateur radio. It wasn't used to send call signals or anything, no, it was just used so officially, but there were a bunch of these ham radios everywhere. It was mostly used to listen to Radio Free Europe. And the Soviets, they'd really tried to block it, and they put their own signal in, in front of it, and they, they tried to stop people from listening to Radio Free Europe, or the Voice of America, all the time, but sometimes it just failed and the the amateur radio was in every town and you just went to the pe- the people with the ham radios and then you had some sneak peeks and then you listened to it and you always had someone who knew english there and and then you tried to, to make some sense of it of course this was this was a very hidden hobby same as the reading reading the small books by solzhenitsyn and other prohibited authors because you know if you could get caught with these materials you would be in big trouble. And of course, NKVD or Cheka confiscated a bunch of these ham radios whenever there was some suspicion of this going on. Not much could be proven because people were ingenious and very, very secretive about this hobby. There were instances when, where people were sent to prison for extended terms, such as 10 to 20 years. Another way of how we got a hold on what's going on elsewhere. Dan Carlin once told that the Soviet Union would collapse if the capitalist countries would just have tossed jeans and Coca-Cola and whatnot on the USSR. Well, he was utterly right on that, because that's how it happened. There were secret video shows in the 80s. You had to pay 10 rubles to enter. Usually, they happened in some warehouse. Of course, vodka and money had exchanged hands before, and you would look at a small TV while sitting there with a bunch of other people. Usually, it was two movies per show. The movies were very crappily dubbed, and the first one was usually action movie, and the second one was either a comedy or a softcore porn movie. This is important because all sexuality was extremely suppressed in the USSR. Being a homosexual was a crime, and you could be put in prison for that. In 1986, Vladimir Posner, 
and Phil Donahue were organizing one of the first Soviet-American telebridges, televised bridges where people just discussed with each, discussed things with, with each other, and one of the American participants in the show gave a question, stating that in our advertising, everything revolves around sex. Do you have such advertising and commercials? And someone there answered, SSSR sex and yet. Basically, it means we don't have sex in the USSR. And that was basically the, the attitude of the government. They really didn't care how they people reproduced. And the fam- a famous joke was born. We don't have sex in the USSR, but the kids somehow get born. Of course, we did have sex, as everywhere. But we really didn't have any porn mags or anything of, of that sort. There was this one book about sexuality. This book was uh, by Janis Stradinch. And it was given to the newlywed people. And was called In the Name of Love. And it was intended as an introductionary book to sexuality for just newlyweds. And that was, that was it. That was everything. And it only came out in 1986 when, when the perestroika was already in motion. But we will turn some other time to perestroika because we still have to get there historically. In these illegal video shows, everything was dubbed by a single guy. There was this one voice which dubbed everything and it later showed up in the TV in the 90s, because the local television used the very same smuggled tapes for their programming. The guy, with his unclear voice and crappy quality, has become somewhat of a cultural phenomenon here, and he always dubbed the movies in such a way that you could hear the original English somewhere there in the background. He was everywhere, and he did all the voices, so he ended up being the one voice for B-movies in the Soviet Union. Another important aspect of the Soviet culture was what was happening in kolkhoz and small towns and regions. As I told before, they each had this culture center or a culture house in their region because they really couldn't go even sometimes outside their, outside their own region. And they had lecture events there, more often than not, and not only entertaining ones. You could, for example, have some lectures such as, and this was a famous one, Is There Life on Mars?, in the 60s, because the professors from universities and elsewhere were just ordered to go to this culture house and read a lecture about something there. But more often than not, they were educational in the sense that they were anti-alcoholism lectures, improvement of war ethic courses, and other things of, of this sort. Now, the funny part is that there, there were often posters with the statement, anti-alcoholism lecture on Friday evening, buffet with drinks afterwards, which was meant to be perfectly normal because you couldn't get anything interesting there if you didn't give enough vodka to the people who actually had to come there. Because although the university professors and everything, they had to give these lectures, they could choose where to go themselves. And as your premium and salary, as this director of this cultural center depended on the quality and the amount of the lectures you had there each month, you really did your best to get some people to come and visit your town, not someone else's. All in all, in general, the level of culture um, in the Soviet Union was very dependent on where you lived. The Soviet Union had this huge fight against illiteracy going on, But uh, Latvia, even before the inclusion in the Soviet Union, before our occupation, had very high rates of literacy, much higher than the rest of the Soviet Union. So in the late 50s, 
my grandfather was put in charge at his workplace by his official communist committee member who didn't even speak Latvian at the time. She was putting him in charge of eliminating illiteracy in his workplace, which was this road-building district governmental company for building roads. So he had to report each month exactly to how many people had he organized lectures on how to read and how many people had he taught reading and writing. And the member of the committee was very surprised when he reported that, you know, I didn't teach anyone how to read or write in this month, because everyone here already knows how to do that. We are not illiterate here. And the committee member was very shocked and surprised as she as she found this out, and she just didn't believe my gran grandfather, and he got into a lot of trouble for this, as he as the people thought he was just lazy and not doing his job. It took about three months uh, until the until this uh, Moscow sent committee member understood that no everyone here actually is literate and we're not your typical farmers and uh, uneducated people which were quite common in the vast vast Russian population. Oh, and the TV? Yeah, the TV had two channels: the Moscow one and the Riga one over here in Latvia. Two channels, and it used to show these movies and some some TV shows but there weren't any series as as known these days but the television was also often used as a tool of education for example when there were centralized exams the questions would be announced on the television the teacher would just put a television set in the classroom turn it on and then a nice voice from Moscow would read the same questions to everyone throughout the Soviet Union well according to time zone of course but I imagine that some days there there were these poor people working on the station reading the questions all day long because the questions were read live and there were no videotapes of them made so that the, so that you couldn't get them beforehand and study for them. And of course, there was anti-American and anti-capitalist propaganda everywhere. Every show, every newspaper, everything was filled with pl political propaganda and caricatures and tales of the American violence in Vietnam, American violence in America, and all sorts of social issues just poking and making fun of Americans all the time. And of course, this was made fun of by the common people. For example, remember Armenian radio? Another one of their great, great, great jokes. The Armenian radio gets a, gets a call from an American listener who gives a, who gives a serious question to them. <clears throat> Excuse me, could you please tell me how much does the average Soviet engineer earn? There is a huge silence in the radio, and the Armenian radio, after a five-minute silence, finally answers. Well, but in America, you lynch black people. Of course, all the sporting events were shown in the television, because sport was glorified in the USSR. Then again, people had to make way to such events if, if something happened. In the Moscow 1986 Olympic Games, about 70% of whole of Moscow's population were given a vacation and sent to a sanatorium and a resort in Sochi, so that the city wouldn't be too crowded with all the people coming to visit the Olympics. When rock music finally appeared in the Soviet Union, it was a huge phenomenon here. As the Soviet state really didn't like rock music or punks or anything heavier than usual in general, everyone was, as they say, keeping tapes in circulation. Of course, everything that we got from Western music was smuggled in and then pirated in many, many copies. 
it was extremely popular due to it just being from the West and just showing some rebellion over there. There, there was a famous group, and one of our studies of, of independence actually comes from the rock music era and rock music scene, because there was this band called Levy, which played pretty hard rock by the standards of the day. And there was a show called Microphone, which was like which was like Latvia's yearly music awards, where people sent in letters, pick the song of the year on television. In 1982, the contest was won by some random pop song, although everyone knew that the most popular song was by Levy, and it was called Zimta Valuad, or Native Language. The song was basically a protest against the Russification of Latvia and the fact that Russian was used everywhere even more than Latvian was. But the local political committee, of course, couldn't allow this song to win, so they boycotted it from winning and gave the second place only. That didn't mean that anyone else didn't know that the song was actually the real winner and the more popular one. On the protests and actions to regain independence from the Soviet Union came in the early 90s, it was basically metalheads and rockers who who got it for us. At least they inspired us to do so. The song, this this native language song, actually only got approved to the contest. The lyrics weren't original, they were a Latvian translation of a Moldovian writer, of a Moldovian poet, so the songwriters actually presented this as a song which represents the internationality of the rock scene going on here. This independence from Soviet Union action got even so far in the musical scene that the official name for this process of us getting out of the Soviet Union is even called the Dziesmota Revolucji, or the Singing Revolution in Latvia. So, this was the outline of culture and everyday life in Soviet Latvia. As the subject matter is so huge, I'm sure I'll return to it in some future episode, same as with the Soviet military. If you have some questions or recommendations about which should I, what should I speak, please let me know. But to do that properly, and have some context when we do it, next time we'll move to the life and adventures of the next Soviet leader after Khrushchev, Leonid Ilyich Brezhnev. Famous for his cult of personality, senility towards the end of his life, while still being in the office as he died while being the head of state and the party, and giving himself more military and civilian awards than Stalin ever had. Everyone made fun of him to no end, while the country itself was in more economical trouble than ever before. Dasvidanya, tovarish. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. 
paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.